what I'd like to do is just, we, I don't have any slides or anything like that, so it's kind of old school, um, but you can turn in Genesis, and we're going to kind of hit a couple places and walk through starting in chapter 25, and it's uh, the story of Jacob. It's the story of Jacob. And kind of where we're going with this and, and the tie-in here is that uh, sometimes in life you face your, your biggest fears. Sooner or later in life, you're going to fa- uh, face your biggest fear. And there's going to be times when you're alone, and, and I think we're going to land on something here that's pretty, pretty interesting just in the life of Jacob as, as it unfolds. And I think it's relevant uh, to all of us. I think it's pretty amazing. So we're going to just kind of set the stage with the story of Jacob. And this is Genesis chapter 25. Now Jacob, if you remember the story has a twin brother named Esau, and, and when they were born, Esau was born first, which was a pretty big deal in those days. It meant that he was going to kind of get the father's blessing or inheritance. He was the firstborn son. He was kind of the big deal. Yet when they were born, Jacob kind of had a hold of his brother's heel. And so he kind of came out that way, and that's where he got his name from. So verse 26, chapter 25, verse 26. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. And so he was named Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So the word Jacob literally, literally means heel. But the kind of connotation here is of striving. It's grasping, striving, and then it kind of takes on a, a further connotation of usurper or deceiver. It's not a a nice name. I mean, it's, it's kind of this striving kind of an idea. And in the ancient days here with the Hebrews, the name was a big deal. It wasn't just, let's find a cool name with a cool spelling. Um, what's, you know, the name that's not the most popular name so that when my kid's in second grade, there's like 20, like whatever names. Emma's, I don't know. I mean, sorry if you're named Emma. That was... You're not in second grade, so it's okay. Um, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, the things that we go through kind of in our minds with names, it wasn't like that. So the names back then really stamped your identity. This is in some sense representative or symbolic of who you are. And so Jacob comes out grasping, striving. So that's interesting. So then as we move forward, we get to chapter 27. And so what has happened is, is that uh, Esau has become his father's favorite, and Jacob has kind of become his mother's favorite. And so the mother kind of really wants Jacob to, in some sense, prevail, but the father obviously loves Esau best. And there's a a window where um, all of a sudden their father is going to die. And the mother realizes here's the window of opportunity because he can't see too well. And so... She kind of dresses her son up, and this is going to be important later, kind of dresses him up so that the father will be deceived into thinking that, that Jacob is really somebody else. Sends Jacob in to get the blessing. Um, and, uh, and the father kind of says to Jacob, who he thinks is Esau, you were supposed to go out and get game and kind of come back. How did you get here so quickly? I mean, how is this process kind of going so fast? And listen to what Jacob says in verse 20. The Lord your God gave me success. So 
His father has told his older, uh, the older brother, go out, get a bunch of game, come back. We're going to have like a father-son time, and I'm going to put my hand on your forehead in some sense and bless you, give you my blessing for your future that you may prosper. And so the older son runs out into the country, and this is going to take some time for him to get game. And here comes the younger son, dressed up, masquerading, deceiving, and he comes in and the father says, wow, that's confusing. How did it go so quick? And what does the son say? The Lord your God gave me success. Wow. You know, I don't know about you. I, I, I kind of started asking myself this question. I'm like, have I ever done that? Have I ever slapped a God sticker on something I knew wasn't God? And, and you know, I'll tell you something. I didn't, ch- I chose not to like think through my life. Because <laughs> I, was, I was freaked out. I was like, I, I don't want to know. I don't want to see that. But I think sometimes, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously, there's probably times when we try and slap God's authority onto something that really is self-motivated. And this is the essence of kind of what Jacob's doing here, and he deceives his father. So the father gives Jacob his blessing, and as we turn over what happens in verse 35, when Esau has returned and, and says, hey, I'm ready for my blessing now, and and his father says, what do you mean you're ready for it now? I just gave the blessing to you. And they kind of piece it together and realize that Jacob has kind of come in and, and stolen this blessing. The father says to Esau, verse 35, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. That striver has come in and he has deceitfully stolen what was yours and he took the blessing. And then Esau says, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? His identity, his his makeup, he's rightly named Jacob. How could he do such a thing? Now, the interesting thing is because they took the blessing so serious, uh, the father says, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. He got the blessing of the firstborn son. Now, Esau burns, I mean, just with hatred for his brother. And so he kind of has this idea, my dad's getting old Pretty soon he'll pass away, and as soon as he does, I'm going to go kill my brother. It's kind of like a Cain and Abel story, right? So as soon as my father passes away, that's it. I'm going to go take and kill my brother, take all that he has because he deserves it because he's a cheat, and he stole this from me. So the mom hears this, and the mom says, you know, you got to get out of here, Jacob. Take these things and go flee. Uh, go back to where I came from, kind of my family, and Jacob flees. So Jacob ends up at his uncle's, and uh, his uncle's name is Laban. And he gets there, and he starts working, and then he, pretty soon he sees the pretty girls, and he's like, okay, shouldn't I be married? And he's really attracted to Rachel, and so he wants to pursue it. Rachel's dad says, seven years you work for me, I'll give you my daughter. So <clears throat> Jacob works for seven years. It's pretty crazy, right? Talk about long courtship. Works for seven years and finally gets the permission to marry this girl. And when it, it comes time to, to marry her, after seven years, he drinks too much. I mean, I don't know if it's understood or not, but I mean, it's, he's waited a long time. He celebrates too much. And the father dresses this girl up with a veil. And what happens? He's deceived into marrying the sister. And it's kind of like the ugly sister that will never get married, so I put her in front of the line. And so, you know, so what just happened to Jacob? Because don't miss the irony here. 
The irony is what goes around comes around, right? As you sow, so shall you reap. What he did by dressing up and pretending to be his brother is exactly what happens here when Leah dresses up and pretends to be her sister. So Jacob now is on the receiving end of this. So he ends up working seven more years, if you remember the story, so that he can marry the one he loved, Rachel. He works seven more years, and it kind of continues that way. And, uh, and then after time, the flocks increase, and he works hard. So you've got a different kind of Jacob here, a Jacob that's getting a little bit older, kind of maybe maturing a little bit, the character's coming around a little bit. And through hard work and perseverance, 14 years, to, to finally get the girl that he loves kind of thing. Through 14 years of perseverance and endurance and working hard as a shepherd, he increases the flocks and begins to, to grow kind of or raise up his own section of kind of his uncle's flocks. Okay? So he's acquiring wealth for himself through hard work. You, know, you see a different kind of Jacob here. I mean, if you really read the whole text, you kind of start to resonate with Jacob, and you're like, it's not like this scheming little brat, like going in and, and being sneaky. It's like Jacob really working hard and beginning to like earn it the old-fashioned way through smarts, through wisdom, through character, and through perseverance. And you begin to kind of resonate with him. And so what happens is, even though Laban had said, God has blessed me because of you, Jacob, and we do this, don't we? Or we experience this. Have you ever had a friendship or known somebody and they in some sense are blessed because of you but all that they ever fixate on is the blessing and they never really look at you and develop the friendship with you and so as soon as you grow or or get big enough you know they get jealous because they never really started loving you they were only in love with the blessing that came through you they they never really developed that connection with you and so it's fascinating you see that here and so his uncle, as soon as like Jacob starts to increase too much uh, and other people start getting jealous, kinds of, kind of turns on Jacob. And Jacob says, geez, what should I do? And so he finally tells his, uh, his whole entourage, um, pack up, we're going to go, we're going to leave, we're going to go back to the country of my fathers. So it's interesting how he does it. He kind of resorts to his old tactics. Whenever he's pressed, he kind of strives let me, let me control situations. Let me manipulate. Let me try and figure this whole thing out so that I can guarantee that I'm going to save my own skin. And so listen to what Laban says when he catches up to Jacob after Jacob's been gone for a few days. He says this, chapter 31, verse 26. Laban says to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me. And you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so that I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? It's kind of amazing here. I mean, this is the identity of Jacob that even as he's growing and maturing and he's worked hard all these years and accumulated things, when he's really pressed, he's going to try and just turn and control, and manipulate, and avoid, so that he can preserve himself. He's afraid. Have you ever been there? I mean, it's amazing. I was talking to somebody this week uh, who, because of their profession, interacts with a lot of people um, in kind of these tough times. And it was interesting 
that the person said, you know, it's amazing. People you've known for a lot of years that are Christians, and then you see character flaws that you never thought existed. You know, it's ama- when, when you're tested and tried, it exposes cracks and fault lines that you didn't even know that were there. And so in some sense, you've got Jacob who's grown, but the pressure now exposes some of those still deep-seated fears of having to protect himself and always look out for himself. Why have you deceived me, Jacob? So Jacob continues on. He's got the big entourage. He's got all these people. And he gets to, to where he's heading back to the land. And all of a sudden, he sends uh, ahead people. We're um, chapter 32. He sends ahead kind of messengers to say to Esau, Hey, by the way, your brother's coming back. Uh, isn't that great? Family. Remember how important family is? And, and uh, it, you know, it's all good. Kind of let's make sure that we still love each other, right? So this is the message they bring back in verse 6 of chapter 32. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So, if you've kind of been this deceptive, manipulative person your whole life, and you're walking into a perfect storm, 400 men, it didn't say like uh, 40 men and women with kids, you know, your extended family. You know, coming to meet you, 400 men. What do men usually do when they hit the road? They like kill stuff, right? (laughs) Hunting party. I mean, something's going to die when you get 400 men together, you know. (laughs) And Jacob knows this. So Jacob, listen to verse 7, chapter 32, verse 7. In great fear and distress... Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. So what he begins to do is he says, okay, let's take the less essential people and send them up front. They're the buffer. Okay, and let's keep the more essential people to the back. And let's let's see what happens when the kind of scouts hit Esau. And and we're going to try and protect ourselves here because this is a nightmare and I'm scared. Okay, so for almost a whole chapter, he does this. He starts sending out waves of people with gifts. And, and when you run into Esau, tell him, give him these gifts and tell him all these things and, and uh, try and pacify him. And we're going to try and you know, control circumstances again, aren't we? Because that's what we do. But at the end of the day, here's what happens. Chapter 22, uh, chapter 32, verse 22. Sorry about that. And here's kind of one of the hinge points of all of Scripture. Jacob gets to the point where he's given everything away. He sent everyone ahead of him, and now all he has left is his kind of close family. And in verse 22, it says that this, That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And that's like the eastern tributary to the uh, Jordan River right above the Dead Sea. So what you're doing, basically saying, we're, we're now entering into that land, kind of the territory that's my brother's. We're, we're crossing over into a different territory altogether. And so he crosses it, and after he'd sent them across, uh, his entourage crosses, after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, verse 24. So Jacob was left alone. 
Jacob was left alone. He had sent everything. He had organized everything. He had done everything. And then it comes to nightfall, and he's by himself. And it says this, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. That makes sense. <laughs> I mean, can you see that anywhere else in literature? You know, you got this amazing drama building, and there's 400 Braveheart soldiers, you know, coming this way, and you got, you know, a guy dividing up the troops, and there's hustle and bustle, and there's dust, and all this other stuff. And then he's all alone, but a man wrestled with him till daybreak. What? <laughs> what does that mean? And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there and was gone. Which, if you've ever seen any superhero movie, movie or like comic book or whatever, they all took that from here. Like, who was that mass crusader? Like, seriously, like all the superhero things, like, what was your name? Gone. Just, here's where it comes from. And so, verse 30, Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Peniel, the L at the end is God, okay? So, I've seen God face to face, and yet I've lived. And the sun rose above him, And as he passed, and he was limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So who was the man that Jacob wrestled with? The man names him Israel. You have have struggled with God. And then he names that place, um, this name that basically means, because I've seen God face to face. Who did he wrestle with? And... Most all scholars, I mean, the tradition, the orthodox tradition of Christianity is that he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He wrestled with God. When he was all alone through the whole entire night up until daybreak, he wrestled with God. Now, it's a fascinating thing because it's, it's where I think the whole story hinges and where we tie into it. There's been a couple times where God has met Jacob in his life and said, I will go with you. I will be your God. And God comes and he speaks to Jacob and says, hey, I'll, I'll go with you and I'll be your God. And have you ever had that experience? Maybe when you got saved, maybe when you were at a worship service. You know what? God is with me and he's going to go with me. And isn't this great yay team? Um, and he's going to be my God. And you, you kind of go through life and you continue to strive and, and you do your thing. But there comes a day when you're all alone and you're facing your greatest fear. And at that moment, I think the misunderstanding we have is that we're going to have to somehow chase God, try and grab him by the coattail because he's disinterested. He's not really paying attention. He's elusive and trying to get away. And we have to somehow grasp for God and it's the same striving thing. We've just exhausted all other resources. 
But that's not what happens. It's not what it says. It says that Jacob was alone and a man wrestled with him. Does that sound like a big deal? I think it's a huge deal. Have you ever seen wrestling? Like flip through channels and seen like MMA or UFC, you know, these days or whatever it is. Like wrestling is two people engaged going back and forth until one leaves. Even training, you got a boxer and and he's training with his trainer and the trainer has the big gloves, you know, and it's kind of like training with him. It's two people locked in and engaged. And when times are the worst and when you're alone and when you're facing your biggest fear, God doesn't just run from you to where you have to chase him and try and grab his coattails and, and get him just to hear one word of you. God will wrestle with you through those times. Why is that a big deal? It's a huge deal because everything changes in that moment. The man that that Jacob was wrestling with asked him, what is your name? Jacob was saying, bless me. And the guy says, what is your name? And he forced Jacob. The guy knew what Jacob's name was. The angel of the Lord knew what his name was. He wanted Jacob to say, I am striver. I am deceit. I am control it all on my own, save my own skin. That's who I am. And the man said, "Uh uh-huh, okay. Now you're going to be man who strives with God and who God strives with. We're going to change your identity. We are going to bless you. You will be different. And guess what? I'm also going to humble you at the same time. And don't we see that kind of everywhere? When the Israelites later on in Scripture are being carted off and humbled into slavery, it's right then that we get all the prophecies about the Messiah and how God is going to bless his people. It's amazing in John, if you want to turn there real quick, End of John in chapter 21, we see Peter, and Peter is now just denied Jesus. And Jesus has died. This is Peter's greatest fear. Peter's a leader. He's a people person. He's rash. He likes having influence. And all of a sudden, he goes into this kind of thing where Jesus gets crucified, and it's his greatest fear. Because all of a sudden, he loses all his influence. He's having to run for his life. People are looking at him and and pointing him out and saying he's one of those guys. And the whole thing is turned for him. And he's facing his greatest fear. And he's all alone. And what does he do? He goes back to fishing. Now, this isn't like, you know, now Peter is out there fly fishing because he just needs to sort out his life. (laughs) Peter is going back to what he did before Jesus called him. He's returning all the way back to the beginning. He's going out there on the boat and he's trying to catch fish and he's trying to act like it never happened. He's just undone. And you know this because there's something really fascinating that happens in verse 15 of John 21. For the first time in a long time, Jesus had renamed Simon, son of John. He'd renamed him Peter way back when. You're no longer going to be a fisher of fish. You're going to be a fisher of men. So here, after Jesus is raised from the dead and comes back, and he finds Peter fishing for fish, what does he say to him? He doesn't say Peter. He says this, Simon, 
son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Ouch. Peter, what are you doing here? Do you really get it? Do you really have the passion for the people that you're supposed to be ministering to and loving and shepherding? Do you you love them enough to engage even though you're scared, even though you're alone, even though you have fear? And he he calls them out and says, Simon, son of John, Petey, what happened to you? And he, he, he calls them out in front of his friends and he kind of embarrasses them He points it all out, and Peter kind of gets it, and after three times kind of says, okay, I get it, I get it, I denied you, Um, I'm ready for this. And Jesus says, you know what, there's going to come a day when people are going to take you away where you do not want to go, and and basically prophesies how how Peter was going to be crucified. He's going to become a martyr. And Peter, shot out of a cannon, from that moment on, becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ fishing for men. And there's this, this whole kind of play in Scripture that in these moments of fear, when we kind of come face to face with the Lord, that He touches our hip socket and He humbles us and then He blesses us. He, he restores us to what our identity was supposed to be or He gives us a new identity and at the same time He humbles us. And it's this amazing picture of what it really means to be blessed by God. It's not, I'm going to fix all the circumstances but I'm going to mark you through this suffering. Now, I've been told by a bunch of people, I've seen it on one or two people, but I've been told by a bunch of people that if someone goes through a 40-day fast, that it marks them. Marks them in the sense that physically you can kind of see it, and they never quite look the same again. And I've seen also that suffering does the same thing. Someone who has really suffered is marked. And someone who has really suffered well is never the same again. That there's a hold that they have on God that is unlike the person who has never suffered. They might limp across the stream towards their greatest fear. But there's a confidence. There's a assurance of faith. There's a depth to their soul that was never there before. Have you ever seen that on anybody? Have you experienced it in your own life? Suffering marks you. And it's an amazing thing that what what really happens when we're completely undone, we have no options, and we're facing our greatest fear, when we turn that towards the Lord and we wrestle and we don't let go, what that really does. I remember... uh, Seven, seven and a half years ago, I went through a really tough time. And I learned that there's a a level of prayer you get to when you pray and pray and pray. And it's completely opposite than all the other prayer times you've had before. Most prayer times, my prayer times, all of our prayer times, we say goodbye to God. Okay, you know, it's been, you know, awkwardly long. People are going to get frustrated with me. Or, okay, that's been enough. I need to get back to work. Or I need to, you know, get to work or whatever. And we shut off the prayer. Amen. Goodbye, God. When we really face our greatest fears and when we we are approaching suffering, whether you're looking at the stock market and 
retirement evaporating or kids' college funds evaporating or the potential of your job evaporating or it might have already evaporated, whether you're looking at the prospect that after months of searching for a job, you can't find one, whether someone has left you or betrayed you and you think you're going to always be alone or, or you can never trust again, whether you're dealing with the health issues that seem like they have no end in sight, whatever you're facing, right? Those fears, those times, they're as real as it gets. And there's something that happens there where when we enter into prayer in those moments, God tries to say goodbye to us. And if we really understand who he is and who we're not, we hold on like Jacob did. Jesus told a story, a parable about prayer, and he says, you know, there's this one lady going to this judge, and she nagged the judge incessantly. And finally the judge gave in and gave her what she wanted because she was so persistent. And Jesus parlays that in and says, the same way when you are persistent in prayer with your father, will he not, will God not answer you? And it's in the, in the darkest hour in those times of suffering and the greatest pain that we've ever faced in our life when we're like Jacob and we're alone, okay, that we learn what prayer really is about. We wrestle and God tries to say goodbye. God's like, amen, amen, say, say it, you know, and, and we hold on and say, I'm not getting up until I know you've blessed me. I remember seven years ago, that, that whole experience in my life. I would pray, and then I'd feel like, oh, it's probably time to go. And I'd be like, no, I'm not getting up until I have a smile on my face. Like, I'm not getting up until I feel like I can make it through the day. I'm not leaving here, God, until you deliver on your promise, your promise to bring me joy in the midst of pain or hope in the midst of suffering. I'm not leaving until it's there. So, there's a pen. I had a professor in, uh, at, at Talbot. He was the only professor that was more of a pastor than a professor I think I ever ran into. His name was Dave Talley. Dave Talley was my Old Testament professor. And he had a way of ending every lesson on the Old Testament with a spiritual kind of point that we can identify with what's going on in this story. And he basically boiled the whole Old Testament down to this little diagram. And it was this. Life is relentlessly difficult. Period. He says the message of the whole Testament is that life is relentlessly difficult. And then you come to a decision point. And you are either going to respond by striving... Or you're going to respond by submitting. And I think what we see here with Jacob is just this thing. That we come to a point where we have to choose. Are we going to strive and trying to fix or trying to control or try to keep playing over and over with all the energy we have? How do I get out of this? How do I control the circumstances? Or are we going to just realize that whether it's our own mess that we've created, Jacob before he left Canaan, other people's messes and their character flaws that send us back to Canaan, or just the fact that life is messy. A man's own folly ruins his life. Our character flaws are mess. Other people's character flaws are messy. 
And at the end of the day, we're going to realize that life is just plain messy. And when we get there and we realize we're all alone and that we're facing circumstances we can't run from. Interesting, Jacob couldn't run. Why? He has a family. Like, he can't leave anymore. Or you have a health issue and it's encircling you. There's no way to avoid it. You've got to go through your fear. When we, when we really get backed into a corner on those situations and we've got to go through it, are we going to bow the knee and submit to God? Or are we going to keep striving? Now, I, I'm not into platitudes. I'm not into preaching. I actually don't like it. I don't like bumper sticker Christianity. And I can't stand when it feels like there's a simple solution to really big problems. I had a pastor one time that during the like, building campaign... Uh, when it was just a stage of wood, came and wrote right where he would stand. And he wrote, speak as if speaking the very words of God. And then they put carpet over it. And then he would always remind the people, I wrote right here, right beneath where I'm standing, speak as if speaking the very words of God. And it would thunder into the like, audience. And I always felt like, man, like, I just can't connect with that. You're not God. <laughs> You're supposed to have confidence you need to have humility too, you know, but it was like this, this, I just can't connect with it. And so I'm not saying that like everything's going to turn out rosy. What I am saying is that all of scripture shows us that God always rewards faith. Always rewards faith. And what I'm saying is it just maybe whatever your thing is and whatever your age is, that if you're backed into a corner and you're looking out, and it's the biggest fear coming true, that you can wrestle with God, and you can hold on to Him, and you can not let Him go, and you can stay there all night until daybreak. He'll meet you there. He'll push back on you there. He's not going to run from you there. That you will find your God in your greatest fear And maybe, just maybe, uh, your identity will change. Maybe it will be the turning point in your life. Where the way that you've approached things before and who you were changes. And you are renamed one who strives with God. And you're marked by that suffering and you take it with as a witness. Not that circumstances will always resolve themselves but that you have a God who will carry you through whatever circumstances, whatever fear, whatever problems are going to be in front of you. So we commit that to him, just that we will look for him and trust that he will find us. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you, says Jeremiah, says James. Father, we just just want to somehow, with just the ounce of faith that we can well up at at some of these difficult times, we want to put it in front of you. We don't want cheap fixes. We don't want cliches that that really miss the depth of our, our pain or our emotions or our suffering. We want to know at the core of who we are that you're going to be there, that you're going to strive with us and that we can strive with you and that you can change us and remake us. We know that it might humble us, that we might limp forward into our greatest fear. That we're not going to ride in triumphantly on some stallion. 
that the people that you work with are marked with suffering, are marked also with humility, but that you are always there and that you are their strength. So, Father, we pray that you would be our strength now, that we would stand on you as a solid rock. Father, I just pray also that we would see pain around us and that we would be filled with compassion because you are with the people who are downtrodden, beat up, poor, scared. And if we can be with those people, then we are with you also. And Father, just give us a heart for those who need encouragement. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.